Welcome to Myth versus Craft. Welcome to episode 18 of Myth versus Craft. My guest today is the legendary session guitarist, Tim Pierce. Tim toured with Rick Springfield for a few years in the early 80s and subsequently decided to focus on being a studio musician. You may not know it, but you've heard Tim play guitar on hundreds, if not thousands, of songs. He's recorded with Michael Jackson, Joe Cocker, Rod Stewart, Elton John, Bruce Springsteen, Phil Collins, and Madonna. How about Don Henley, Santana, Tracy Chapman, Faith Hill, Celine Dion, John Legend, Avril Lavigne, Kelly Clarkson, Josh Groban, everyone. I think his resounding success is a result not only of his focus and talent, but also of his work ethic and personality. Tim has also managed to stay incredibly busy for over three decades, which I think is a testament to how good he is and how masterful he's been at continually evolving his style and his sound. It's no wonder that Guitar World named him one of the top five session guitarists of all time. Tim was kind enough to find time in between sessions to speak with me and share a number of stories and great insights. Let's start by listening to how he fell in love with music. It wasn't really my parents that created my love of music. They just allowed me to kind of pursue music, which was, you know, a real gift. But my love of music comes from Top 40 Radio in the 60s. I was born in 1958. So in about 1962, I started listening to the radio. And it, uh, it, it was magical to me. I've uh, heard you mention more than once that you feel fortunate to have been 12 years old in, in 1970. What were some of your favorite bands and musicians from this era? Well, of course, the Beatles, but in the late 60s, the emergence of all, you know, all the bands that were at Woodstock, you know, Jimi Hendrix primarily, but, you know, all the rock bands that came out, all the blues guitar players, all the British blues guitarists, uh, and even, even, even pop records. Like I say, it was the radio, um, but guitar-wise, it would have been Hendrix, Billy Gibbons from ZZ Top, Johnny Winter, Wishbone Ash, Pink Floyd. You know, just the list goes on and on. B.B. King, it just goes on and on. You took guitar lessons from uh, ages 12 to 14, and I've uh, read you, or uh, pardon me, I've heard you speak very highly of your guitar teacher, Steve Moss. Is it pronounced it's, Moss? It's, it's Maze. And he, Maze. when I first met him, he said it's like moose with two A's. And that's the best <laughs> way to remember it. But it is, it's, it's M-A-A-S-E. And he still teaches today. And he is truly a great teacher. I, uh, it ch he changed my life. He really did. What made him such a great guitar teacher? Well, his tastes ran uh, just along the same lines as mine. In other words, he was just as enamored with rock and everything. But he also was enamored with fusion, Mahavishnu Orchestra, a lot of more advanced stuff, which I, 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 I dipped into, too, in, you know, after in my teen years. Even though I couldn't play that music, it did influence me. But more than that, he was a very, very – he was kind of a life coach, too, because he would actually ask you – how your life was going. Um, he really cared, and he taught me just enough theory to actually make it in the world. And so not not too much theory to put me off, but just enough to actually <laughs> uh, allow me to actually make it in the world. Did you play in many bands when you were in high school and growing up? I did. Uh, I played in bands pretty constantly, and then I had one band that actually played in bars. So so in my teen years, I would I was in bands that played on the weekends. It was very sporadic. But then I had a band that was very, very serious about playing. 
in nightclubs, and I started that right when I when I was too young to actually be in the nightclub. I was playing in nightclubs, and that was a six night a week thing where we did you know all the. It was pretty wild, pretty some pretty wild bars, but it it, it was a great way to actually become a better guitar player for a while. I read that you were about twenty twenty one when you got a car and you moved to L.A. Yeah, it it uh, it was right before my twenty first birthday. My parents, my mom gave me her old car, and I moved out here and just took a shot. You know, did you have a master plan when you moved out there? Did you uh, none have at a all. sense of what you were hoping your career would look like? None at all. I I just hoped that I could become a pre- professional guitar player. And I was so dissatisfied with the limitations of being in Albuquerque and and not being able to pursue anything professionally that I honestly didn't care what happened. As long as I could work and make a living, that's all I cared about. I've asked other guests who have moved to you know music meccas, be it Pete Thorne who moved to L.A. or or J.D. Simo when he moved to Nashville, uh, about the level of confidence they had when they moved out there. And they both gave me a similar answer, which was, yeah, they were pretty darn confident, and you almost have to be to have the guts to move to a city like LA or to Nashville and to try to make it. Was that the case with you as well? Well, I'll give you a slightly different answer. The, the thing that happens to musicians in small towns is, is they become big fish, and I was certainly a big fish in a little pond. And when I got here, I was astounded by how many good guitar players there were everywhere. So my answer to you would be different. I don't think I had confidence, but I definitely had the kind of stupid confidence that comes from being a big fish in a small pond. I was I was good enough to start working right away, but I was pretty inadequate as a rhythm player. I learned to play rhythm guitar the day I dropped into L.A. I started learning how to play good rhythm guitar from the songwriters I started working with. So uh, happily, I can give you a different answer, which is is my confidence was kind of destroyed when I got here because there were so many great guitar players everywhere. Do you remember how long it took you to get your first paid gig? It, it happened almost immediately. I had a uh, another a friend of mine named a guy who's still my friend today. A guy named Steve Sykes, who's a great. Uh, he actually ended up becoming a recording engineer and a, and a mixer, uh, and he did all of Stanley Clark's records and all, all these other things. He actually, I met him, and he actually got me a gig that he was leaving. Uh, the thing about L.A. in that period of time, the Knack were huge. Remember the Knack, my Sharona. Yeah, of course. New Wave was huge. Van Halen was. Two years, uh, you know, they, their record had been out for about two years. So you had this huge heavy rock scene along with this huge new wave scene and an industry that was just exploding. So there was work for musicians everywhere. And the kind of work I started doing right away was working with songwriters. There were these, these things called showcases where uh, an artist would put together a band. They'd do a showcase for a record label. That happened all the time. And there were demos constantly to do. So I started working right away. And through meeting one musician, I was able to meet three more and then nine more. And then what's nine times nine? Uh, 81. It, it was like a tree that actually started, you know, if you just picture a tree, you meet one person, it turns into three branches. Those three branches turn into nine branches, et cetera, et cetera. You recorded with Rick Springfield and later went on the road with him for four years, I believe. I think this was after he had hit it or begun to hit it big. So I figured it must have been a pretty cushy gig, yet you never toured again. Did being on the road get old in a hurry? Well, for me, uh, I was 21 when I moved here. And when I was 23, I got that gig with Rick. And at that moment, he was the biggest star in the country. He had just had a number one hit with Jesse's Girl, and he was replacing his band. 
I had gotten to play on his most recent record because the producer was a friend of mine. So when I went to audition for Rick, I really kind of knew what he was, what his tastes were. And I brought in two very loud 100-watt Marshalls. And I think because I was... Two. Uh, yeah, two. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it was loud, which he loved. Because his on stage, he likes to be the who, basically. His, his on stage uh, presence, you know, he's trying to recreate the who and Pete Townsend and everything. So I got that gig... We had met before. I knew kind of how to treat my role. And the other thing is that I was not a pretty boy at all. So I think that was actually helped me kind of get the gig because it, it, it meant that I wasn't, you know, competing with him. I, I, he never said that or anything, but I think it was a case where uh, usually you have to be really good looking to be a side musician. But in that case, it, it was the opposite. And I didn't have the hair or the image for rock and roll at all in that at that period of time. So... It actually worked in my favor. I was more of a new wave kind of character. But what happened when I did those four world tours, I quickly realized that being a sideman was not really what I was interested in. And being on stage was not my favorite place to be. So I, uh, after those tours ended, I planted my feet in LA and tried to make it as a studio musician. When you say the stage wasn't your favorite place to be, was it? I'm, I'm going to paraphrase something that John Frusciante, I read him say, the former guitarist for the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and he talked about how he felt almost like like a trained monkey on stage, just playing the same stuff over and over again, and that it seemed somewhat artificial to him, and that he was much happier being at home just writing music and creating music. And that has contrasted with the perspective of many other of my guests who who really seem to relish the interaction with other musicians and, and the crowd. And it seems like perhaps you're more in the former camp where perhaps just doing the same stuff over and over again, was it just monotonous or what was it that you didn't like about it? Well, that's part of it. But there's a creative, um, there are a lot of creative limitations when you go on tour. Uh, and it's different for different people. Somebody like J.D. Simo or Joe Bonamassa, somebody like that, they're, they're going to have a lot of creative freedom to do different things and change things up every night. But the actual world uh, of touring for most people is you actually perfect what you're doing before you even leave to go on tour. So if you rehearse for two weeks or four weeks, you actually finish everything off. And when you go out on tour, you are generally just trying to repeat what you did when you rehearse the show before you left. So it, creatively, it can be very stifling. So that's one thing. Um, but more for me, I just saw a... I was a sideman, and there are also limitations being a sideman because you're not in, in control of your own destiny. So for me, the people I always admired, even when I lived in Albuquerque, were the names I saw on the people who actually made the records. So for me, I wanted to actually make the records. I respect John Frusciante for saying that. I agree with him. But it can be better if you're in a band where everybody's an equal partner and you're all kind of going out and ruling the world together. You know, if I were in the Foo Fighters, I would never quit that gig. I'd play, I would enjoy every moment on stage. But that's because they're all, you know, or if I were in Van Halen or, you know, I'm fantasizing here. Right. Uh, or the Chili Peppers, I would, I, I personally would find a way to make it work. I read an interview in which you said, there were guys who moved to LA and became amazing studio musicians immediately. It took me 10 years of learning to actually get good enough to show up and deliver what needed to be delivered. Given the amount of success that you've had, I'd peg you as a natural, but your quote makes me think that hard work and the fact that you focused on being a session player were both key to your success. Would you say that 
in your in your teens and and when you were a big fish back in Albuquerque, did you stand out amongst your guitar playing peers? Would would you say that you have a a solid base of natural talent? I figure you have to because otherwise, no amount of work could have could have led you to be as successful as you are. I kind of uh, I kind of had one thing down really well. I kind of knew how to solo and play from the heart, but it wasn't the kind of soloing that, that it was more a classic rock style of soloing. I, I, I was able to kind of get up, up to the level of, um, almost Larry Carlton because I loved Steely Dan later, but, um, that's not really true. I'll never be even one fifth as good as Larry Carlton, but I was able to actually solo like that. So what I did have when I moved here to LA was an ability to solo in a, in a very emotional and confident way. I was a pretty uh, bad rhythm player. I didn't have rhythm chops because I, I was so obsessed with soloing that I never paid much attention to rhythm. So what happened when I moved here and what prevented me from probably being good right away, well, I wasn't good. What prevented me from working right away was I just wasn't that good of a rhythm player. And that's what took all those years. The thing about studio work and the thing that I finally got good at after Rick Springfield, after Rick Springfield, I planted my feet and I did publishing demos for two years where I would go and work for songwriters who paid me minimally to finish a song, sometimes three a day. I would drive around Hollywood. There were lots of publishing companies, lots of private homes where songwriters would do demos, and they would really just beat me up trying to get me to do all these parts on songs. And that's where I actually improved the craft, um, was doing those publishing demos. And it was entirely rhythm guitar and sounds and parts. You mentioned J.D. Simo. He was on the show a few weeks ago, and he described his experience doing session work in Nashville. Uh, he started out recording demos, which he said was super low-key, but as, as he started working for bigger producers and bigger artists, uh, he said it progressively got more intense and became very high pressure. And he shared that if you, if you ever slowed someone down, they just that, that was about the worst thing you could do, and, and people would get really angry at you. I take it that you thrive in high-pressure situations? I learned how to do it, and I do work at, uh, when I have clients in front of me or when I'm going to a studio, if they're in front of me at my studio or if I go to a studio and work with them, it's crazy fast. I work. Uh, and it's faster than is natural. You know, the, that's the thing about, the, the, you know, you show up at a session, everybody's smiling and laughing, but the actual undercurrent is, it's, it's do or die. You, you either deliver something really great or you don't get asked back. So the pressure is is uh, is real. I read an interview with uh, Eddie Kramer in which he was asked how he handles situations in which a band member just isn't cutting it, and he has to recommend to the band that they bring in a session player. And he actually mentioned you by name as an example of someone that he would bring in. Has this ever put you in an awkward situation, say, where you're in the studio cutting the track and the band's guitar player is there while you're recording his part? Uh, it, it, that's happened quite a bit. It happens less these days, but over the course of the, you know, over the course of my career, that has happened a lot and it is very difficult. You know, generally what you try and do is make friends with the person, uh, let them know that, you know, their position is not threatened because once you do your part, they can take credit. They can take credit forever for what I do. I have no, no stake in, like I'll mention I did a lot of work with the band Shinedown, and I'll mention that I did that, but I don't, I don't, uh, I don't push it, and I don't, you know, I don't talk about it. It's just, uh, you know, we, we shared some recording together, but 
the guitar player in Shinedown, that's his gig. He, he's the guy who gets, you know, he, he worked on it too. So it's, it's, it's no big deal. Did you run into situations where perhaps the band member made it explicitly clear that, that, okay, he was accepting that someone was going to come in, that you were going to come in and do their part, but that he didn't want it to get out? Or were they never that overt about expressing that concern? Well, it's kind of my job to make them feel not threatened, basically, which I try and do. And I'd say that almost 100% of the time it's worked out because once I'm out of there, I might be there for a day, I might be there for a week. Once I'm out of there, I'm gone. And they can go rule the world. And I'm just a guy who made some sounds on their record. And I'm at peace with that. And so I, I just, I, I make it clear to them that, that I'm not a threat. They, and, you know, it's, it's, their fans don't know me. Some of the people who read the fine print, they find out. But it, I really am no threat, you know. But in the moment, it, part of my job is to solve that problem and make them feel okay if I can, or as okay as they can feel. Are you typically hired to play like Tim Pierce, or are you asked to play all sorts of styles and to be a chameleon? I'm asked to play all sorts of styles, but the the thing that I try and do, the thing that you don't want, you don't. It's not that you don't want it, but if somebody needs a guitar player and they have a list of names and they feel like any name will do, you don't want to be in that equation. The thing that you want to be, you want to be the guitar player that they want. And you want them to actually kind of feel like nobody else will do. And so it's, when you get into that situation, you do have to be a chameleon because everybody's trying new things all the time. So you do have to be able to do anything and everything. But what you want is you want to be you you want them to be able to adjust their schedule to hire you rather than just hire a guitar player at a, at a specific time on a specific day. So you want to try and transcend the uh, the roster. You want to you want to be you know the the person that they want and the only person that they want. And I've been able to achieve that with a lot of my clients. So what uh, non musical aspects have you found to be key to your success in the session world? You mentioned a moment ago. Part of your job is making sure that you don't make the artist feel threatened. And I imagine that there are many other, call them soft skills, that are not related to the actual musicianship that are just as important to your success in that world. Uh, I try and treat everybody as an equal. And there are people, there are sometimes quality issues in the music that, you know, if I'm going to make a living at this, I'm going to work every day that I can. And some of the songs that, that, that we work on might not be the best song ever written. And I treat every song like it's do or die. So I, I try and lift everybody up to their to the highest level I possibly can, even though maybe the drum part is not great or the actual chorus is not the greatest chorus ever. So simply put, if there are quality issues, has nothing to do with my level of care or desire or commitment. And But I, I don't think I'm unusual in that. Most of the musicians I work with uh, in this day and age, they really give their all, no matter what the situation is or what the quality of the project is. Have there been situations in which you you did your best to remedy or, or to perhaps elevate something that perhaps wasn't up to par or as good as you felt it could be, and the artist or the producer wasn't as receptive as you would have hoped, and it was bad enough to the point that you decided to leave the job? Well... As I've, my career has progressed and as I've moved a lot of the work home, I'm actually able to, shall we say, transcend those situations. You know, I certainly spent decades. Studio work 
is very difficult because you're dealing with crazy politics and people who are really, this is their one shot. Generally, if you do a record with somebody, even if they're a new artist or an artist that's, that's, that's huge, you go into the studio with them and they're on the line really, because every time they do a new project, you know, they're putting this thing out into the world and it's, they're really, really on the line. So a lot of crazy stuff happens and a lot of people do stifle you and, and push you in directions that are uncomfortable. That's always been part of it. You know, sometimes it's brutally uncomfortable being in a situation with people who are sending you in directions that are not natural to you or you don't agree with. I'm happy to say that these days, if that happens, I would... Well, I'll tell you a story, and it's been far along the way. I did Shakira's first record, uh, which maybe was her biggest record. I don't know. That was a situation where I didn't feel like I connected with her at all. And if I had been here in L.A., I would have very graciously suggested to her on the third day that she hire somebody else. I would have suggested three or four other guys. But because I was in Miami and they had air freighted all my gear there, I actually had to see it through. So I was even ready at that point to bow out of a gig because it wasn't uncomfortable. But but because I was in in Miami, I really had to stick it out. It was a different situation. You know, it it, it would have been too hard on them and on me to actually walk away. Um, There was a Michael McDonald record that I did uh, in the 90s where on the first day, I spent the whole day playing, great musicians, it was Pino Palladino and Manu Cachet, and I spent the whole day playing, and I didn't really see any response from Michael or Russ Teitelman, and at the end of the day, I said, guys, you know, I don't think I'm the right guy for this, and so I walked away from a pretty high-paying, prestigious gig, because I just, I, I kept looking for a response on their faces, I never got any feedback from them, and it was very painful at the time, because you do feel like you're a failure, but... Uh, in retrospect, meaningless, meaningless. Just, just get me out of here. I want to enjoy my week. Over time, you must have gotten really good, not only at, at maybe developing a thick skin, which maybe you had naturally already, but also at reading people and reading the reaction. And that I imagine some people are more expressive than others, but in this case, you read them correctly. Yeah, it's more, it's more reading people. I don't have a thick skin. I mean, I, I'm, I'm ultra sensitive and it, the pain is real. When, when, when things don't work out, you feel the pain. But I know at this point, I've been through it enough to where it, it wouldn't matter who I was in the room with at this point. I would just suggest that we part ways. And actually, at this point, it wouldn't be that painful. You know, that's one of the, the benefits of of being older, you, you, you lose, you know, some of those, you know, things. You mentioned, uh, the work that you do at home and I know that you have a great setup there and I can see it right now on screen. Do you typically record for smaller artists or smaller acts at home and record for the larger ones at studios or is that not necessarily the case? I've had lots of large people, if you want to call it that, uh, in my studio. The more the, the the more the thing has changed for me. Most of my work at this point is with independent people and international people. Um, so I do a lot of that here at home. But I'll give you an example. Last week I did a Barbara Streisand song here at home. Wow. Um, she didn't come to my house, but. Uh, Josh Groban I've done here. Um, wow. So it, it really, it's become so accepted 
that it's both. The reason, you know, the first time it happened to me, I was at the record plant working on a solo record for the, this guy, Alex Band. He was in a band called The Calling. And I remember Tal Hertzberg, who uh, has passed away since then, but we were at the record plant tracking and he looked up from the console at me and he said, okay, we're going to your house next week, right? And I knew at that point that there was no difference anymore between perception of a big studio and my home studio. And I was so pleased about that. So I would have to say, it doesn't matter anymore. It really doesn't matter anymore. The thing that has changed for me is that guitar is not really a part of pop music as much as it used to be. So some of the biggest artists in the world, in the 90s and early 2000s, I was working with the biggest names in music. Now, I can't really say that because those people, first of all, they don't really seek studio guitar players like they used to. They probably have somebody nearby who does their guitar parts for them. And the other thing is, there is not a lot of guitar on pop music in general. There is tremendous guitar playing on country music, but most of the music that gets done out here is is pop, or the people have their own guitarist, or they play guitar. So consequently, most of my work now is either independent or international. Uh, I'm not as as much on the charts as I used to be, and I'm fine with that. I'm absolutely fine with that. You mentioned some of these artists um, coming to your house or or in some cases, I'm sure, being present at the studio if you're working at the studio. Is that something, is that typically a positive or do you prefer to have some separation and, and, and do it on your own? Uh, I always prefer to have them here because if we create it together, they are going to like it more. And if we create it together, it's going to happen twice as fast, if not 10 times as fast. So you're kind of shooting in the dark when you work without direction, I feel. That being said, there are places you can go, like I can create sound effects. I can spend an hour on a sound effect if I'm by myself. Mm -hmm. And because of what I said earlier about momentum and speed being such a big part of studio work, there are benefits to working on your own. But I would say I would always choose to have the artist here because they, it's kind of like threading the eye of a needle. Uh, sometimes what they want is so specific. It might be just the amount of dirt on a part or the rate of the tremolo or, or just the way things lay into the track. Absolutely. I, I mean, I, I try and see people on Skype or have them here in person 100% of the time if I can. Would you work exclusively from home if you could? At this point, there are benefits that are undeniable. Um, and the biggest benefit is my rig here is so large. It's like starting a Ferrari, basically. I just press a button and I can go 200 miles an hour and offer them 200 different things at the touch of a button. If I go to a studio, the gear either has to come from the cartridge company, which is a separate rig, or it has to come in the trunk of my car, which is also a separate rig. I have to drive there. The rig has to be built, set up. The engineer has to mic it. There's quite a bit of work involved in getting set up and going. And then I can only offer a fraction of what I offer here. But that being said, stuff happens in that situation that would never happen here. Mm -hmm. I did a lot of work uh, at studios. I was Last November, I was not here for a single day. I was out the entire month at different studios. And the stuff you get is different because you're in a different environment, you're dealing with different adversities, different personalities, and a lot of the time, you're playing live with a bass player and drummer and keyboard player, 
And so different stuff happens. So at this point in time, the home studio is, yes, it's definitely my preference because I can just offer, you know, do you want a Gretsch through a tiny amp with this particular fuzz or what? You know, it's all here. <laughs> and I can't bring it all to the studio anymore. It's, it's just not feasible. I often hear musicians wax poetic about recording live with the whole band and how they feel that it yields better performances. Do you often get to cut tracks while playing live with, like you just mentioned, the drummer, bass player, the keyboards player? Uh, guitar is a little different animal than that because once the basic track, a lot of times uh, when you cut a track with a bass player and drummer, your work hasn't even begun yet. Your particular part can be great. It can be spontaneous. It can be magical. But one guitar part is generally not what's re what records sound like anymore. So for a bass player and a drummer, it's very, you know, it's easier for them to say that. But for a guitar player, a lot of what happens, happens in overdubs. Now, if you listen to a record made in Nashville, those are essentially live records. They put together a seven-piece band. There's an electric guitarist on the left, electric guitarist on the right. There's an acoustic guitar player. There's maybe even a couple of other specialists. And then what they do is they might do one overdub, and they do it right after they cut the track, and it's done. But generally, if you're the only guitar player on the tracking date, your work begins when the bass player and drummer are drinking coffee and checking their iPhones. So it's a little different. Um, I don't, you know, I love the camaraderie of being in the studio with other musicians. But in order to really do what I do, uh, a lot of it has to happen in overdubs. I figure that working in the digital realm must offer you many advantages. Do you miss anything about the analog days? Um, I did record analog recently a couple of times, and it is better the problem with the only problem with digital, it's the end user. I mean, if if the actual customer and end user could hear what we're hearing in Pro Tools, if that mm -hmm. level of quality could be taken all the way to the consumer, mm -hmm. it would be great. But the the problem is with the end product being, you know, made into such a lo-fi thing. Earbuds, laptop speakers, and MP3s, and and even even the good, you know, even even Spotify or just the end, even the best end user scenario, they don't hear what we hear. And in particular, like if, if I if I do a session at 192, which is possible, nobody does it, but I did one in here with Ken Calais, the guy who produced Rumors and, and Kobe Calais' dad. And it's phenomenal. So uh, digital is great. I do believe the Neil Young philosophy that you're not really hearing everything with digital. There is some merit to that, but... It, it's really when it gets taken out of our environment that it really starts to lose everything. I've adapted, and I do like it. I read an interview with uh, Daniel Lanois in which he was asked a similar question about the difference in sound between digital and analog. And he had a great answer, in, in my opinion. He pointed to two different mics in a studio. And he said that the difference between those two mics dwarfed the difference between tape and digital. I think highlighting the, the many, many variables that, that could affect the outcome and the way in which that something sounds, digital versus analog being just one of them. Do you think that perhaps the appeal of recording the tape is more so in the methodology and the inherent constraints than the actual sound itself? You know, that is a really brilliant thing for him to say. Um, 
for me, I have to say that distorted guitar and analog tape were very, very good partners. And since most guitar parts at least have some level of, you know, grunge in them or just, a, you know, drive, we'll say, it, it tended to soften the electric guitar in a very wonderful way. And I think the electric guitar would be more popular in music if, if everything was still analog because it had a, uh, you know, a very, it enhanced, it enhanced and really made distorted guitar sound pleasurable to the ear. And what happens with distorted guitar, I feel, when it, it goes out on YouTube, it suffers the most because it gets pixelated and granulated and, and made harsh. Right. And so the method, methodology of recording analog, yes, it, it required musicians to really play and singers to really sing. So there was a lot to be said for that. Um, I remember I did a session with years ago with Peter Frampton, and we were both playing guitar together, and I was reminded why people got record deals in his era. It's because they were so phenomenal at playing and singing. <laughs> and so it, it's, it's, you know, it really was, you had to deliver the goods. When I, I didn't, you know, I, I, I recorded analog for 15 years, I, I, you know, out here, and it was... It took. It was a lot harder. To, it was a lot harder. People had to be really good. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I think of of uh, the Sound City philosophy, right? The, the movie, uh, in terms of of not only having to be that much better, and the the inability to to aim for perfection and to fix everything in post in post production. Not, not only that that it sounds different and that you're and that the musicians need to be able to play their instruments and you need to be able to sing and you need to be that much tighter and that much better but also that it lets through a little more of that that human imperfection and you know and Dave Grohl makes the argument that that's actually part of the appeal that is lost when you try to you know grid everything and make everything just perfect what are your thoughts on that i absolutely agree but you 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 have to talk about it in a larger cultural sense because what happens is that people, the music that was amazing to me was created by musicians playing and analog studios, and the audience thought it was amazing too. Now, what, what happens every five years is we go through these shifts where now the listening audience is accustomed to hearing music that comes from people who put their ambitions into their laptops. And so there is a a change that happens slowly or quickly, depending on how you want to look at it, where the actual listener, with every five years that goes by, they start to perceive what they think is good as being different. And the only problem now is that people's perceptions are based on perfection. And all of this crazy stuff that comes out, it's like CGI for music. And so it's really a cultural thing that, that as the years go by, if people listen to a record from 1970, they might think, what's wrong with that? It doesn't sound right. It doesn't sound polished enough. Mm -hmm. And so it, it, it's, it's this giant shift that happens over time and what people are used to listening to um, that dictates it more than anything. No, that makes sense. I, uh, I was wondering if, if given your setup and given that you do so much work on a regular basis, 
do you ex- experiment much in the studio anymore or have you found the right mics and the right combos and everything works just fine and you just leave it as is? It's both. And being a guitar player, you pretty much realize at a certain point that you don't need to try a bunch of different speakers anymore. We all use Celestians for pretty much everything. Now, there are people that would argue me or argue with me about that, you know, um, but there are certain things that you can just rely on forever. The, the sound of a particular amp, a particular guitar, a Les Paul or whatever. So it's important, and I think this would go for any artist in any medium, being painting or sculpture or anything like that. Part of being an artist is realizing what not to waste time on. And you really get there after a number of decades, and you experiment in the realms where you know it's going to yield results, but you don't waste time trying to redesign a hammer, or you don't waste, you don't waste time trying to pound a nail in a different way. So it's really, you, you make smart choices about what not to worry about and what not to waste time on. That makes sense. So you're not doing a lot of power tube swapping to make sure to see if you can just tweak a little something here or there. Yeah, but now for everybody, it's different. For for some people, that's where all of the, the that's where they live and, and that's where they want to experiment and do crazy stuff. But for me, there's certain things that, you know, I, I leave my SM57 in the same spot and I, I you know, I'll, I'll, ch- I'll use a different microphone, but I won't move that microphone once I find a good spot for it. You know, so certain things you want to leave in place because you want to be able to get your work done, basically. Assuming that you have good songs and good musicians, which are two big assumptions, do you think that making a great sounding record is as mysterious and difficult as many people make it out to be? I think it's just as hard as it ever was. Uh, and partly because who do you want to be stylistically? I mean, the, the great thing about guitar is that People come and they ask me for sounds from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and then let's say early 2000s. So the hard thing about making a record is obeying enough tradition so it doesn't get completely unrelatable, but finding a way to make what you do new. Like I just listened to this new Ray LeMontagne record, and I think he did. they did that brilliantly. It, it reminds you of stuff that you've loved. But the sounds are new, the guitars, it's, it's a combination. So I think it's harder than ever to make a great record, even if you have great songs, because you can be so many things. There's so many, so many uh, you know, clothes you can try on as an artist, as it were. Is that where some of your experimentation comes in and trying to tweak your sound as people's expectations and tastes are being recalibrated every few years and, and trying to make your sound just kind of remind you of something while at the same time sounding contemporary? Absolutely. I mean, a good example is that I try and play cleaner sounds most of the time now. If I play a cleaner part or play two parts that are really, really clean, it's going to sound more modern than what I used to do 15 years ago, which was layer a bunch of distorted guitars. And here, let me turn the phone off here. Um, so absolutely, you, you're always trying to adapt if you want to stay in the game. And I do. Really, I really do. And it's really not that hard because if all, that, if all it means is that I have to make my sounds cleaner and play less guitar parts, I can do that. And then that makes me sound like more like what I hear on the radio right now. So yeah. 
how are you calibrating your own ears? I mean, of course, you're listening to a ton of music because people are coming to you to record it for yeah. them. Yeah. But are you also listening to other people's music? Do you have your one ear on Top 40 radio to, to get a sense of what is contemporary? Uh, yes. Top 40, though, doesn't really it's, – it's, it's, There's not as much guitar. Well, yeah. So that's not the greatest source, although – let me put it a different way. If you listen to Top 40 Radio, you're going to find one really unique guitar part in a lot of different songs here here and there. Like where they go, oh, let's add some guitar here. And it might be something really unusual and really, it might be sloppy even, but it might be, uh, it might sound, you know, like it doesn't fit. But you're, you're, the way people use guitar uh, in pop music now is, is as a an event or a seasoning, and so there's a lot to be gained for that from that. But the thing is, you might listen to you know 50 songs, and there might be guitar only on five of them. But those guitar parts are going to be kind of unusual, and kind of uh, like I like I say, events, special events. So there's a lot to be gained from that. But you really have to you have to look at pr- practitioners who are still enjoying the guitar as part of their music. And that might, that could be found in modern country or in, you know, uh, alternative music or independent records or, or singer-songwriter records. So you have, to, you have to search for it more than you used to. You've mentioned country twice now, both in terms of having great guitar playing and in terms of cutting a lot of tracks live. Do you get to do much or have an interest in country music and being in L.A.? Uh, I, I have an interest in it, but it's not something that I get to do because here in the West coast, it's not really, not really going on. Um, it's just more of a, 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 an observation about the the people in country music. It's almost like we, let's say if there's a, we in pop music, we said, Oh, we don't want guitar anymore. We don't want classic rock. We don't want these uh, traditional songs. And it's like almost like the country people said, you don't want it, we'll take it, we'll run with it. So it's, it, it, I think it makes us all kind of jealous as guitar players out here on the West Coast because they, they get to do the, the stuff that we wish we were doing in some ways because it's, it's really where organic music lives today. And it's, it's kind of the haven of organic music production. It's an amazing thing to witness and behold. I'm not really, I can't really relate to a lot of the lyrics, but I'm always listening to what's happening underneath. And I've made peace with that. You know, I'm one of the few people who actually gets to prosper out here on the West Coast and work with a lot of artists all the time. The thing about out here is that it's it's really pretty wide open stylistically and people are, are there's no rule book and lo, no limitations stylistically. You can you can be doing tons of different kind of things. And like I say, a lot of the work I do is for for artists who are you know international artists. So the West Coast is, you know, it's it's I think it's a harder place to do organic music, and country is like I said the last. You know, I I read a great thing by T Bone Burnett where he said it was Nashville was the Alamo of the music business, you know, it's, it's, I wouldn't go that far, but it's definitely the greatest place in the world for organic music. What are your thoughts on the likelihood of, of this being cyclical and, and the prevalence of guitar playing some being something that ebbs and flows and it coming back or, or at least increasing in prominence and popularity? I think it will, it is cyclical in a way in that I think people will start to crave the humanness of organic music. 
and guitar being an organic instrument. Uh, but I think it has peaked as a cultural phenomenon. I think it's going to share the landscape with electronic music in a greater way. I think it's been removed from electronic music for the, the time being, and that the, uh, it will actually come back and share the landscape in a greater way. But it'll never be what it was where, you know, it was Def Leppard and the Rembrandts. And, you know, it, it, it used to be the engine. The electric guitar was the entire engine behind music. And that's not going to happen. It's the laptop now and electronics. So, yes, I think it is cyclical, but it will never return to what it was. It will, it will, it will rec reclaim a greater share of the landscape than it has now, but it won't come back uh, to the way it was. I've read that you like to work hard during business hours and then have a clean break from work at a reasonable time. I read an interview in which you joked that if you placed an ad, it would say, musician for hire, doesn't travel, doesn't work at night. Yeah, um, and, when I, and now I can add older musician uh, for hire, doesn't <laughs> travel, doesn't like to work at night. I've been able to craft my professional life uh, kind of the way I want to. There are still producers and artists that I work with until one or two in the morning. Mm -hmm. But it has to be a particular scenario. I do shape my professional life to kind of where I can kind of end my day by about 7 p.m. But I have to tell you that even the, young, the younger people I work with, um, they like the same thing. Look, entertainment has always embraced anyone who's been w willing to work a double shift every day. So if you are talented and you're willing to work 12 to 16 hours a day, you will go far in entertainment. Uh, but I was never that guy. And there are a lot of people who, who realize that if you work really, really hard, nine hours a day, over the course of time, you're going to have a better life. You're going to get better results. You're going to spend some time with your family. So I don't feel like quite the odd man out anymore with that desire. But it is the truth. Yeah. What do you like to do in your free time? What interests do you have outside of music? Uh, for me, it's at this point, it's exercise, it's my marriage, and basically, the last hour of the day, I like to watch something really high quality on my television. Uh, I, I don't have a lot of interest outside of music. Um, more, it's more for me, I like work to be optional after a certain hour. So what I do is, is I consider work mandatory until a certain hour, and then I'll go hike in the mountains, come back, and I might be in my studio working on something from 9 to 11 p.m., but it's optional. It's not mm -hmm. mandatory. And I ask because two, two guests, uh, Mike Campbell from The Heartbreakers and David Grissom, both shared a, a similar, uh, I guess, a similar story in that or a similar experience in that they both described, in a sense, being unable to break away from music and how whether they're walking their dog or trying to watch a movie or washing the dishes, like music is just this permanent entity that they can't shake. And it's often a distraction. And, and they might be watching a movie and a musical idea pops in and they can't shake it free. Or they, or they, Mike Campbell talk about being, listening to the radio and almost being unable to truly just listen to something and enjoy it because he was either disliking it, in which case he would change it, or maybe enjoying it, but analyzing it and thinking about what he would have done differently or what he would, or getting ideas from it, being as immersed as you are in music day in and day out, do you have a similar experience or are you able to break away and perhaps enjoy casually listening to music? Well, the thing is, 
my professional life is relentless, and I don't do one record a year. I I work on a record every day of my life um, for somebody uh, or a song or a piece of music, and. I dare say that that that's the difference. The thing about the the end of my day, like I would suspect that when Mike Campbell is recording a Tom Petty record, at the end of his day when he goes home, he's pretty spent. But they don't they're not in the studio all the time. Right. I am. So what happens to me is I'm managing burnout and fatigue so much because my work is so intense every day. I don't quite have that problem. I'm engaged in such a really ferocious way every hour that I'm working because it is all studio work that when I go hiking, I, I'm not really obsessed with music because it's, it's, the hours are so, you know, it's just, it's so, like I said, ferociously, you know, I'm just deep into it when I'm doing it. Not to say that none, that they aren't, but I, I do agree with Mike about, analyzing music I, I at a certain point you do you're thinking about every sound every part you're thinking about the entire spectrum of how it was made and that does change things for you it, it doesn't have quite the same magic that it would have for another listener the the overarching thing i will say about this is that my commitment to music is probably not as great as either one of those guys there are people i meet all the time who have a greater lo- love of music than i do and I do love music, but there are people like, um, you know, Tom Bukovac in Nashville. His love of music is, is frankly, much greater than mine is. Um, and that's what happens when you get out in the real world. You see people's gifts. People's devotion. You know, Pete Thorne and I have this interview show now, and every guitar player we interview is Which more... Which is fantastic, Oh, thank way. you. Thank you. These guys, they're all more devoted than I am. So... I'm not being humble. I'm not being self-effacing. I'm just being honest and realistic. You know, when you get into the big world and you get near the top of this industry or whatever, you realize you're surrounded by people who are deeper into it than you are. And that's, you know, I would I would put David Grissom and Mike Campbell into that category. You, you mentioned that you're constantly managing burnout or the risk of burnout. Have you had moments when you when you crossed that threshold or when you were disillusion, disillusioned or just got tired of it all and, and at any point considered abandoning it or you never got that close? No, one of one of the secrets to my success is that I'm tenacious and I, I just keep hanging around. And what happens is that when I'm burned out, I show up the next day and I just dig deeper. Because the people I'm working with, they it's their you know, like I say, I record records every day. It might be the one shot that this person has to do their recording. They may have gotten the money from crowdfunding. They may have, they may be using their own funds. It may be a record deal. It's their one shot. So I have no right to, you know, I just have to dig deeper. And then hopefully maybe six or seven days later, I can do a big exhale and collapse, (laughs) have a down day, you know. Let's talk about your work outside of sessions. Your YouTube channel has almost 4 million views and you have about 66,000 subscribers. Why do you think it's been so successful? I got some help early on from Marty Schwartz and Brett Papa, uh, these two guys who were also very successful. And I modeled myself after them and they actually kind of put me on the map. Uh, They've both been very generous and I owe them a lot for getting me going. The, The thing is, I have a formula where I... 
I kind of didn't know I was doing this, but I have a formula where I'm reaching guitar players and I just stuck with it. And I was able to use, uh, you know, I taught some Hendrix songs, which are, are very popular searches on YouTube. And I just realized it's, you, the thing is YouTube is a very, very slow, it's a slow build on YouTube, you know, and, and the success I have is micro success compared to the real YouTube stars, but, but it still doesn't matter. It's, it's, even, you know, it's such a big world out there on YouTube that you can, you can do a lot with, you know, 70,000 subscribers and 4 million views. For me, I always felt that someday I would end up teaching music. And when I realized I could do it on a worldwide 24 hour a day level where I am just constantly reaching people, I just, I just, I fell in love with it. I actually love this chapter and this thing, this teaching thing that I'm doing just as much as session work. You publish great video lessons, and I think most, if not all of them, have been free. Some time ago, you made a 10-hour massive set of lessons available for purchase. What are your plans for future video lessons? What are you looking to – where are you looking to go with them? Well, that was the first step, and it's, it, it, it has actually sold very well. I, I've actually been very surprised. Brett Pop and I made that together, and, and we're, we were actually kind of – shocked at how well received it's been. Uh, and I'm very grateful for that. My next step is I'm going to debut a membership channel where people pay for access a year at a time. And that's, you know, I've been working very hard on creating the content for that. And the content will be ongoing and it'll be, you know, there'll be new stuff added every month. So that, that'll be next. I'm going to offer and a membership. when do you expect that to go live? I think I can within the, the, the next 60 to 90 days, because we, we've been working on it very, very hard. Tim, it's been a real treat to speak with you. Thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed this. You too. Your guests are phenomenal. So it was a, a real treat for me to be considered among them. Thank oh, you. absolutely, Tim. I'm, I'm really grateful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.